There's a a problem that every Christian will run into at some point in their lives. And we see it all throughout the Bible. As you're reading through the Bible, you run into it all the time. We've seen it all throughout church history. And I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have run into it even in our own walks with Christ. And that problem is the problem of fear and doubt. As Christians, at some point throughout our walk with Christ, we will face fear and doubt. We might face fears in the midst of challenges in our life, whether it's something physical like a job loss or sickness, or maybe it's something spiritual. We're fearful and worried over how our children are doing, how they're doing spiritually. We're fearful of the way people will react towards us when we try to share our faith with them. And a lot of times when we face those fears, those fears end up causing us to doubt. We doubt Can God actually provide for me? As you're worried about money, you're fearing this thing or that thing, provision in your life, and you're doubting, I don't know if God actually can provide for me. You you start to doubt, is God actually hearing my prayers? Is God listening and watching over me? We start to hesitate and second guess when we try to share our faith with others because we are struck with fear and doubt. Our passage this morning offers us an insight both into the cause of this problem, why are we so prone to fear and doubt? And also the solution, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves fearful and doubting? And what we're going to see is the underlying cause, I think, this passage teaches us of all of our fears and doubts, the root cause of it is the fact that we have little faith. Now when I say faith, just to be clear, I don't mean our saving faith. For all of us here this morning who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, There was a moment in our lives where we came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We repented of our sins. We placed our faith in him as the only one who could save us. We stopped trying to save ourselves, and we turned ourselves over to him to be saved. Then we're saved, and we have our faith in Christ. What this passage talks about is a faith, a lack of faith, a little faith, uh, which is basically a lack of trust, a lack of truly trusting and believing that God can do what he says he's going to do, that God is truly all-powerful, that he does keep his promises. So it's not that we're wavering on our faith, coming in and out of being saved. No, we're saved, we're in the faith. But as we're walking with Christ, as we're pursuing him, we run into moments where our, our trust in him, our, our belief that he's actually going to do it, our belief that he is working in our lives, even in the midst of tough circumstances, That's the thing that wavers because as uh, weak human beings, we are prone to have little faith that leads us to doubt and to fear. This morning, we're going to be reading a a familiar story, I'm sure, to most of us in Matthew chapter 14. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14, we're going to read about Jesus walking on the water, meeting the disciples out in the middle of this lake, walking on the water. And in it, we're going to see how the disciples struggle with the lack of faith that ultimately leads them to fear and to doubt. And then we're going to see the hope that this passage has to offer us. What's the, what do we do when we face that fear and doubt? So before we get to the solution, I just want to try to prove to you from this passage that we are, in fact, people, uh, even the strongest Christians are going to be prone to fear and doubt because of their weak faith at some point throughout their walk. I want to try and show that for Matthew 14. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 14. Our passage begins in verse 22. You'll notice that the beginning of verse 22 says immediately. So that means something happened right before this that we need to know to understand what's going on. So I just want to back up to Matthew 14, verse 1, to tell you what's happening before we jump into our passage in verse 22. 
14.1 says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then the passage goes on to explain that basically Herod had killed John the Baptist. He had him in jail. Then he had him beheaded. And now he's hearing about Jesus going around and doing all these miracles, and he's worried. He's like, uh-oh, it must be John the Baptist back from the dead. Well, and then in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 13, now Jesus heard this, and he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Basically, Jesus hears the news that Herod's hearing about him. Herod's hearing about these miracles. Herod's thinking this guy he beheaded is coming back, and Jesus goes, I'm going to go to a desolate place to be by myself, to pray, to get away from all of this. So he gets in a boat, goes to the other side of the lake, tries to get to a desolate place, but then all the crowds who are following Jesus, wanting to see more miracles, wanting to see what's happening, follow him. They, they run around the edge of the lake to go follow him, to meet him again on the other side of the lake. And this is where we get this great miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He has compassion on the crowds that show up, and so he multiplies food to feed all of them. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in verse 22. So he's just, they've, all the people have eaten, the food has been multiplied, 12 basketfuls have been picked up, and now Jesus is going to dismiss everybody and we'll go into our story for this morning. So here's Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Here's the first thing I think that becomes apparent as we read this passage. The first point is that we are people of little faith. I think that's what we learn as we read this passage. Because think about who it is in this passage. These are the disciples, and we see that these disciples are prone to fear and doubt. Uh, so basically what happens is immediately they pick up the baskets and Jesus sends them away. It says he made them get in the boat. He's like, all right, you guys leave, get in the boat, go to the other side. They're probably wondering, well, what about you? How, if we go to the other side, where are you going to be, Jesus? He's get in the boat and go to the other side. Okay. So they go, he makes them leave. He dismisses the crowds and then he finally does what he's been trying to do for this whole chapter, which is get to on the mountain by himself to pray. So once he's done praying, he's there alone on the mountain. And by this time, the boat's a long way from the land. It's out in the sea uh, because it's being beaten by the waves because the wind was against them. And it's now in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25. So that's between 3 and 6 in the morning. Um, the Sea of Galilee is not that big of a lake. Really, they probably should have... We don't know exactly what time they started across the lake, but they probably should have been 
either to the other side or near the other side by three or six in the morning. Uh, but they weren't able to make it that far because in verse 24, the, they were beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. So basically, as soon as the disciples have set out, they're just getting pounded by the waves. They're trying to cross. They're trying to make it to the other side and they've been fighting against the waves all night. Now they're tired. It's the middle of the night. They're exhausted. It's three, four, five in the morning. They're still fighting against the waves to get to the other side. And that's when Jesus catches up to them, walking out to them across the water. Um, and they see Jesus and understandably are terrified and think he's a ghost. Just imagine, I think this makes total sense. If you were out in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, and you saw somebody walking towards you on the lake, you should probably be terrified. It's t- what it, it makes no sense. The, a lot of these guys are fishermen. They've been on this lake their whole lives. They've obviously never seen anything like this. They're terrified. It makes sense for the disciples to be scared here because it's a scary thing that is happening to them. This storm, somebody appearing on the lake, stuff like this happens in our lives. There are real scary situations that we can run into. Fear is a part of our life. We're going to be afraid at different moments in our life. Jesus reaches out, call, you know, he calls out to them. He says, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And then Peter uh, answers him in verse 28, and Peter wants to not be afraid. Peter wants to prove his faith. He wants to show, I'm not afraid. I can follow, I trust Jesus. I know who he is. I have faith. He wants to prove his faith. He wants to prove that he's not that scared. So he asks Jesus to call him out on the water. And so Jesus, Jesus calls him out. Peter gets out of the boat and walks in the water and comes to Jesus. But then immediately, he, he looks around. He, he, it seems like he goes a decent amount of distance. He walked on the water and came to Jesus in verse 29. So he's already close to Jesus. He's been walking on the water. But then he sees the wind, the wind whipping the waves. All of a sudden, basically, he remembers, I'm a fisherman, and I've been fishing on this lake my whole life, and I'm now in the middle of the lake, not in a boat, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, and he's scared all of a sudden. Again, rightly, all of a sudden, he, I mean, this is a guy who's grown up on the, there's cognitive dissonance here. He, he's seeing himself on the water and he's going, what is happening? <laughs> and he's terrified, he's terrified. And then he starts to sink. And notice what Jesus says is the reason he sank. The text tells us in 30 that he was afraid. They, were, they started afraid because of the whole ghost thing. Now they're afraid, now he's afraid because he's in the middle of the lake sinking. And Jesus tells us the, re, the other reason why he's sinking, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So not only uh, was Peter afraid of the circumstances, the storm swirling around him, the middle of the lake with no boat, but that fear caused him to doubt. That fear caused him to doubt that Jesus could continue to keep him on the water, and so he starts to sink. And so see how scary, fearful, frightening moments can lead us then to doubt and to not trust that God can save us, that God can keep us above the water. Why did Peter get scared and doubt? What's the cause of all of this? What's the root cause of fear and doubt in Peter's life and by extension in our lives? This passage teaches us that it is our little faith. Verse 31, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. Little faith is what causes fear and doubt. Notice how I think the disciples had, uh, of all people on earth, the disciples probably had the least reason to fear when Jesus was with them. Think about all the things the disciples have seen. They're currently seeing with their eyes Jesus standing on the water. They know they're looking at Jesus, seeing him standing on the water. They know it's possible to be on the water. Jesus is doing it right now. They just a few hours earlier saw him feed 5,000 men plus women and children. So what is that? 10,000 plus people feed miraculously feed them uh, with just a few loaves and fishes. Uh, 
And they had already seen Jesus almost in this exact same scenario, calm the storm, back in Matthew chapter 8. Same lake, same type of storm, and Jesus calms the, the lake there. So the disciples have seen firsthand over and over and over again Jesus' power over all creation. And yet still they have a weak faith that is causing them to doubt. Interestingly, in Matthew chapter 8, a very very similar parallel passage to this, Jesus says almost the exact same thing. He tells them, Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? And now in this chapter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So twice, over and over again, in these moments, Jesus is teaching us that, that the doubt and the fear that comes in these moments is from a lack of faith. I think that every Christian faces this. We all, none of us, are going to have enough faith on our own that in every circumstance of our life, we're going to be able to hold on and trust in God and never fear and never doubt when when trouble comes, when things start happening in our lives. And in case you don't believe me, just based on Matthew 14, it's all over the Bible. Almost every single character, hero of our faith in the Bible that you can think of, at some point struggled with fear and doubt. Think about Abraham and Sarah laughing when God told them that he would give them a child in their old age. They didn't have enough faith to trust that God could actually do that. They're laughing. Think about Moses, this great prophet, terrified to go speak in front of Pharaoh, terrified. He's asking God to send somebody else. He's like, well, give me, give me Aaron. You gotta help me, God. I can't do this. You're, you're picking the wrong guy. Think about all of the many, many Psalms of David that we see David afraid, David doubting, calling out to God, asking for help. There's many famous examples, of course, in the New Testament. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, this guy who was beheaded, martyred for his faith, the guy who proclaimed the Messiah was coming, he's in prison, and he sends his disciples to go talk to Jesus and ask Jesus, hey, are you actually the Messiah? Are you the one who was supposed to come? So here's John, imprisoned for the miracles he was doing for his faith. Now he's doubting, hey, Jesus, is, are you really the Messiah? Of course, famously, doubting Thomas, he, he usually gets, uh, he's usually the person we think of when we think of doubt in scripture. He needed to see Jesus' hands and feet. He needed to touch him to know that he had risen from the dead. And there's one other example that this, this really blew my mind when I found this. I'm sure I've read it before. I'm sure I've seen it before, but apparently my eyes just passed over it as I was reading it. But later in Matthew, there's another example of the disciples doubting uh, that I had never noticed that I found while I was searching through looking for examples of of doubt. This is Matthew 28. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples. He's appeared to people. They've touched him. They've seen him. They've eaten with him. Now, this is the very last few verses of the book of Matthew, starting in verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Matthew 28, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Can you imagine standing in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, worshiping him together with the other disciples? He's about to ascend to heaven. He's about to send you off, commit great commission, go to all the earth. You're in the presence of the risen Lord, worshiping him, and you're still doubting. I think scripture bears through without a doubt, without a doubt, (laughs) that we are gonna face fear and doubt throughout our walk with Christ. The disciples can still be doubting as Jesus is commissioning them to go to all the earth in the presence of the risen Lord, then we are certainly going to run into times of fear and doubt in our lives. 
We don't have to just look to Scripture to see this. We can also just look to church history. There's many of our heroes of the faith have well-documented times in their lives where they struggled with fear and doubt. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the guy who had so much faith that he stood up to the whole Catholic Church on the basis of Scripture and said they were wrong, and look at what Scripture says. A hero of the faith kicked off this whole Reformation, famously struggled with doubt towards the end of his life. You can read some of his diaries, some of his stuff that he wrote where he really struggled thinking about his faith, thinking about who God is, how he could be saved. Uh, John Calvin, another reformer with him, had this to say about doubt. He said, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that's not tinged with doubt or any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. So here's John Calvin saying, "There's no, it's not even possible to have faith that doesn't have some doubts assailing it at some point. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, this uh, 19th century Baptist preacher, also struggled with depression, with doubt throughout his ministry, and even closer to us, C.S. Lewis. You can read about how he struggled wrestling with his intellect and his faith with fear and doubt. So all that to say, I think this passage and many, many others prove that we will face doubt, we will face fear, even when we're trying to live faithfully. Peter's a good example here of trying to step out in faith. Jesus, I do trust you. I do trust you. You are Lord. Call me out on the water. Going through our life, normal things, normal things like storms on the sea while fishing, normal things, trying to live faithfully are things that will end up bringing up fears and doubt. Why? Because we lack faith. So think about just a few examples. Here's one that came to mind immediately for me is think about when we try to evangelize. You have a friend, a family member, a coworker, somebody you know who you really want to share the gospel with. And of course, you're gripped with fear. You're trying to share it with them. You're nervous. You're like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to share it with them. You step out in faith and then they start coming back at you with, what about this? You've, and you've never heard of that argument. Or, oh, hey, well, what, the Bible says this. You know that? And you're, oh, oh. And you, all of a sudden you start to fear. Wait, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Then doubt starts creeping. Maybe the, does the Bible say that? And all of a sudden your faith is uh, under fire. You're doubting, you're fearing even in the moment while you're trying to be faithful in sharing your faith. I think about, uh, I haven't experienced this personally yet, but I imagine as we raise children and pray for them, we're trying to raise them faithfully. There's moments throughout raising them where it doesn't seem like it's going well, and you're afraid, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't working, and you're doubting, God, are you even hearing my prayers for my children? Are you helping me with this? What's going on? And, And as we're trying to be faithful, in raising up our children in the right way, we still are fearful and doubting that God is actually working in their lives, that God is doing anything. What's going on? There's lots of things in our life, just normal commandments that will cause us to run up against fear and doubt. We can think about tithing. That causes, that we need a lot of faith to be able to do that. Standing up for what is right in our world that hates what is right. Every time we do that, we're going to come up against opposition that might cause us to fear and doubt as we try to do faithfully what the Bible says and people make fun of us or people say we're dumb or whatever it is. So what do we do about it? What is the solution that this passage offers? Next time, this week or next year or at some point when you run into a situation that causes you fear and doubt, what do we do? What do we do when our little faith uh, gives up on us? We're out, we run out of our, the faith that we have and now we're doubting. I believe what this passage teaches us to do is to cry out to the faithful Son of God to save us. Because we are people of little faith, we should cry out to Jesus to save us. 
I want to go back through this passage. We've kind of gone through it once, looking at the disciples, what they were doing in here. Now let's go back through and see how does Jesus respond to the disciples. The first thing he says to them, he goes out, he meets them. They're terrified. It's a ghost. Verse 27, Jesus responds to them. He calls out to them and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The first thing Jesus does to calm the disciples' fear is to tell them to not be afraid because he is God. Look at this phrase, take heart, it is I. That, the, the three words there, it is I, those are the same uh, words in Greek that are used for all of Jesus' I am statements in the book of John. You could, you could say it, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. Now you'll know if you remember some of those statements in John uh, that when Jesus is claiming these things, he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. He's saying all these things. One in particular in John chapter 8, he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. What is Jesus claiming when he uses these I am statements? What is Jesus saying about himself when he says, I am? He's saying, hey guys, I'm God. I'm Yahweh. We should hear echoes of, if you remember Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out in the wilderness. God appears to him in a burning bush, commissions him to go and save Israel from the Egyptians. And, it, and Moses is like, God, who should I tell them? sent me. What, what's your name, basically, God? Who, who, who are you? Who should I tell them when they ask who you are? And God says, I am that I am. I am who I am. And so when Jesus is echoing that statement throughout John, he's saying, hey, I am. I am this. I am that. And then the most obvious one before Abraham was, I am. What did the, the religious leaders do right after that in John 8? They picked up stones and tried to kill him because what's he saying? I'm God. That's exactly what he's saying in this passage. He is currently walking on the sea. He's saying, hey guys, don't be afraid. I am. I am God. And he's not just saying it to them. He's proving it to them by walking on the water and showing that he is the Lord of all creation. Uh, He's already done this. Again, we went through these. He's been doing this throughout his ministry, proving to the disciples, hey, look, I'm in charge of this world. I'm the Lord of creation. They should have been able to figure this out without him saying, hey guys, it's me, I'm God, because he's been doing it over and over. He calmed the storm, he's multiplying food, who else could do that but God? And now here he is walking on the water saying, look, I am, look who it is, don't be afraid. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, water is a symbol for chaos, for death, for darkness. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. When you see water, it oftentimes represents just this chaos, death, destruction, darkness. The sea is unruly. The sea is untamable. You can't put reins on the sea and control it. It's un- your humans aren't able to subdue the sea. But what we also see throughout the Old Testament is the one person who can subdue the sea, God. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God is the one who subdues the sea. Right in the first chapter of, of the Bible, The spirit is hovering over the waters. There's darkness, there's chaos. And what does God do? He creates order out of that chaos. The Red Sea, the the Israelites are trapped. They have to cross this water and who can part the sea? Who can actually move the water and control it to go through the sea? Only God can. And so here's Jesus again doing things only God can do, controlling the water. And there's also a few verses I just want to run through really quickly that point out how Not only can God subdue the sea, create order out of it, control over it, but he's the one who tramples over it. He's the one who makes a way through it. Uh, Listen to these verses. 1 Job 9, chapter 8. 
uh, God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. God's the one who tramples the sea and walks on it. Psalm 77, verse 19. Your way, Lord, was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. God is the one who makes a path through the waters. Uh, Isaiah 43, 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. God is the one who makes a way over the sea, who tramples over the waters. And here's Jesus Christ saying, look, I am. You see how I'm trampling over the waters, coming to you through the sea? The first thing we should do when we are afraid, when we are doubting, when we are worried, when we are coming up against troubles and tribulations of all kinds in this life and we find ourselves struggling to trust in the Lord, struggling to believe that he can keep his promises, that he has our best in mind, the first thing we do is remember that the Lord we serve, our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price for us and rose again, is the Lord of creation, of all the universe. He is completely sovereign over everything. The first thing we do is to remember how God is sovereign over all things in our life, and that should begin to, as it did for the disciples here, begin to bring us comfort in times of trouble, in times of fear and doubt. And of course, we can also remember not just going through Scripture and seeing how God has been ruling over creation and working throughout history, but we can look to our own lives and see how God has rescued us out of darkness and into light, completely and totally saved us, and we start to remember and be less afraid. Now, I think Peter gets what Jesus is saying. He's like, okay, it is Jesus. He's walking on the water. He's starting to realize what's happening here. He wants to prove his faith, so he steps out of the boat. And then that's when he still gets in trouble with fear and doubt. So I think there's something else this passage teaches us to do. When you're facing fear and doubt, the first thing you do is remember who your Lord is. He's the sovereign Lord of all creation. Then what do you do? You're fearing? Okay, God, you are the Lord of all creation. What do you do? You cry out to Jesus to save you. You do exactly what Peter does here. You cry out for Jesus to save you. Look at verse 30. Peter goes out there. He sees the wind. He's afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saved him, lifted him out of the water, and asked him why he doubted. Jesus doesn't, uh, you know, laugh at Peter like, ha, you thought you could walk on the water. You almost made it, Peter. What happened? He's not making fun of him. He's not upset with him, scorning him for, come on, Peter, you were so close. How come you're sinking? What are you doing? He just hears Peter ask him to save him, reaches out and saves him. And that's it. When we cry out to God, he is faithful to save us. He doesn't make fun of us. He doesn't laugh. He just reaches out and saves us. And I want us to think about something in this passage. I have a question for you. Why did Peter sink in the water? I was reading this, I was thinking about this passage, and I was like, why did Peter sink? Because Jesus says it's because of his doubt, right? Of you little faith, why did you doubt? So it seems like his doubt was what caused him to sink. But do our doubts like actually impede on God's power? Jesus was the one holding Peter up on the water. The only reason Peter was above the water was because Jesus was upholding him there. When, when Peter started to doubt, was Jesus like, oh, I can't hold him anymore. I can't hold him. His doubt's too much. No. So that can't be why he fell. Also notice this, this detail stood out to me in, in the passage and I was thinking about it. Verse 30, saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out. When was the last time you began to sink? Have you ever been, have you ever stepped off the edge of a pool 
and tried to walk on the water, I distinctly remember being a kid, being at the pool with some friends from church, and we were messing around trying to see how far we could walk on the water. Uh, When you step off the edge of the pool, you don't begin to sink. You plunge into the water. There's no beginning to sink. You're not like, oh, oh, no. You're just gone. So what is Peter doing beginning to sink? It's possible that he just plunged in, but I was just looking at it, began to sink. It seems like Peter's slowly sinking. And he's, Lord, save me, save me. He's starting to go down. All this leads me to believe that uh, Jesus must have let Peter start to sink slowly. Why did Jesus let Peter start to sink slowly? He didn't have to let him sink. He also could have let him plunge in. Why did, Pe- why did Jesus let Peter start to sink down slowly? He did this to teach Peter a lesson, to increase Peter's faith and to teach him what to do when he finds himself afraid, doubting, sinking. What do we do? We cry out to the Lord and he saves us. Jesus is teaching Peter that he needs to depend on him for salvation, depend on him for faith, depend on him when he finds himself fearful and doubting. This whole experience of of getting stuck in the middle of the lake against the wind, Jesus telling him to go, but not telling him how he's going to meet up with them. The whole thing, I think, has been a test for the disciples to show them that when you're fearful, when you're doubting, when you're about to drown, you cry out to Jesus to save you, and he's faithful to save. That's what we do. When you come to the end of your faith, when you're worried, fearful, and doubting, you cry out to Jesus to save you, and he's faithful to save Uh, He doesn't start laughing at you. He's not like, come on, dude, you got into this mess again. What happened to your faith? Where's your faith? He just reaches out and saves you. He doesn't let you plunge into the icy depths. Uh, He uses our weaknesses. He uses our doubts. He uses our fears. All these experiences in our life, he uses them to grow us and to conform us to his image and to teach us to rely on him. Just like the disciples, we will encounter times in our life where we fear and we doubt. And uh, if you remember, James chapter 1 tells us to count it as all joy when we face trials. Why should we count it as joy when we face trials and tribulations of all kinds? Because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. It's through testing, it's through trials, it's through doubts that Jesus teaches us to rely on him. And it's through testing, through trials, through doubts that we start to grow and our faith starts to strengthen and we start to look more and more like Christ. So the next time, that you are assailed by fear and doubts, cry out to the Lord to save you. Recall to mind who he is, that he is the sovereign Lord of all the universe, and right then and there, pray for help from the Lord. He's not going to make fun of you. He won't be ashamed of you. He will help you. He wants you to cry out to him. He uses these things to teach you to cry out to him. So we can think about some of those examples earlier. When you're in that moment, you're, you're trying to be faithful, you're stepping out of faith, you're trying to evangelize and share your faith with your coworker and they're coming back at you. They're firing stuff back at you. You're starting to fear. You're starting to doubt. You don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if this is, uh, right then and there you pray, Lord, help me. And it's not as if, it's not a mystical, I mean, we don't have Jesus like physically right there pulling us out of the water. It's not the exact same situation as Peter. God won't just zap you out of the situation or boom, download a bunch of information into your brain to immediately say the right thing. But God is faithful to help us. He's going to use that circumstance to grow you and shape you. When you are trying to live by faith in parenting your children the right way and it doesn't feel like it's going well, you cry out to him for help. You ask him to help you. And again, it's not perfect kid right then and there or perfect parent right then and there. But God is faithful to help us, to grow, to teach us, to shape us. 
in any example in your life where you're trying to live faithfully, stand up for what is right, do the right thing, follow Jesus, and you find yourself fearing and doubting, cry out to him in prayer, and he is faithful to help you and to use all circumstances for your good to grow you and shape you. I'm reminded of that verse in uh, Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And that includes all of the doubts and fears along the way. He uses those for good in your life and to teach you to cry out to him. I meant to mention this at the beginning, but this really, hopefully you've uh, realized this throughout, this is really a sermon for Christians. This is for people who are following Christ, who are his disciples, who are trying to live faithfully and are struggling with whatever it may be. If you're in here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, um, you may have fears and doubts, but those are not actually the most of your worries. Right now, if you're outside of Christ, not only is none of this saving help in times of trouble available to you, right now you are under Christ's wrath. You're under condemnation. You're outside of any of this saving help from him. The first step is placing your faith in him for salvation. If you have never done that, repent this morning, place your faith in him for salvation, and then you will have this great God, this sovereign king of the universe, walking alongside you, helping you to grow. Who begin, he who begins a good work will bring it to completion. So how do we respond to our great Lord and Savior who not only saves us, not only brings us from darkness to light, but is faithful to walk alongside us and help us in time of need? How do we respond to him? The same way the disciples respond in verse 32 and 33. They got Peter and Jesus make it back to the boat. Jesus calms the storm again. Notice that just sneaks in there. The wind ceased in 32. Second time he's calmed the storm in the lake. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Realize what has happened here. God has used this experience in the disciples' lives, this terrifying, harrowing experience of the storm and a ghost and falling in the water on the lake to help them realize something about who he is. The last time the disciples were on the lake with Jesus and he calmed the storm, he calmed it and all the disciples were like, who is this guy? This is crazy. Who is this guy? Now, a few chapters later, they've seen him feed the 5,000. They've seen him walk on the water. He saves Peter. He stops the storm. And what do they say this time? Truly, you are the son of God. Jesus used this whole experience to teach the disciples something about himself. He used this whole thing to teach them that he is the son of God and they can cry out to him for, faith, for salvation, that he is faithful to save them. This is the first time in the book of Matthew where the disciples make any kind of realization of who Christ is. They're starting to realize, oh man, this Jesus guy is, is somebody special. This is the son of God. And in only a few chapters later, Peter himself will confess Jesus as the Christ. So as we go out of here this morning, as we get to the end of this story, and as we think about our own lives where we face fear and doubts, our response should always be to worship the Son of God, this sovereign King, this Lord of all creation, who's faithful to save us when we cry out to him. We respond by worshiping him. That looks like singing loudly with our whole hearts on this next song that we sing this morning, but it also looks like going out of here and living your life as a living sacrifice of worship to our God, who not only has saved you out of wrath and into his family, into glorious communion with God, but who continues to walk alongside you to help you when your weak faith fails you to be faithful to you. So we go, we worship him, we serve him with everything that we are, 
because he is faithful to us. We worship the great son of God. We are people who are prone to have little weak faith. We're people who are prone to fear and doubt, but we serve a savior who's the opposite of weak. He's, he's the very God of the universe. We serve a savior who doesn't have a little faith, but who is completely faithful. So cry out to him in the midst of your weaknesses. Cry out to him in the midst of fear and doubt, and he is faithful to save you. Let's pray.